Today's show is about not derailing yourself when it comes to either owning real estate and understanding how to assess it from a valuation point of view and of course buying real estate and understanding right now in a rising market values are changing daily. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a code cracker. Yes, we're going to dig into valuations and why understanding the different ways to value real estate is a great way for property investors to shop well, buy well, and of course, analyze their real estate over time. I tell you what, I think today's episode is full of facts and figures and awesome little tidbits. So I'll tell you what, take some notes if you have to. This one's a doozy. And of course, right now, a lot of property investors out in the marketplace are being exposed to rising values, which of course makes it very difficult for many, many investors to comprehend what is good value and what is FOMO. We want to beat the FOMO, so today's show is FOMO Busting by Understanding Valuations. If it's your first time joining me on the Urban Property Investor, I want to welcome you aboard. We uh, certainly do some lessons around real estate, and uh, I tell you what, make sure you play me in double speed so you can crack this episode in about 20 minutes or less. My episodes tend to go for around 45 minutes or so, so... uh, you gotta speed me up, I reckon. Hey, I hope everyone's doing well. Today is an awesome day, but the real estate market is indeed rising in value. And of course, if we look at the growth even over the first quarter of the year, it is quite staggering. Sydney has risen on average by 12% over the year, 8% in the last quarter. Uh, amazing amount of figures coming into uh, the data set when it comes to real estate. Does that mean every real estate's gone up in Sydney? Absolutely not. Uh, But at a broad-based level, the market is certainly performing in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, Canberra, Hobart, Perth, all the major areas, even Darwin. Let's face it, we haven't looked at Darwin since buying weird mining villages was a thing. Darwin is even rising in value. There's hope for us all when Darwin rises in value. But I tell you, when it comes to this growth spurt, it does create a little bit of imbalance when it comes to the actual purchasing of real estate. So I think it's really important to understand value. Remember, property investors have a great opportunity to spread their wealth around Australia. And I always teach the five cities, five properties plan. Try and spread your real estate, be diverse, have some real estate in various marketplaces across various dwelling types. And of course, the result of that is going to be when the market moves heavily, lots and lots of wealth. And we can see, for example, in dollar terms, uh, if we go back to March quarter or the sort of first quarter of 2020, the average property value in Sydney, according to domain, at a house price level was around 1.15. Now we're at about 1.3. 
So we've seen a $150,000 gain in that marketplace. In fact, uh, really, those people who've got themselves to five properties are probably going to pull about a half a million dollars this year in capital growth. And of course, this is what it's all about, right? We want to end up in a financial space where when the market roars, we are absolutely killing it. And uh, for many people with uh, multiple assets across real estate, really most of their assets are probably going to produce a $100,000 minimum growth return, uh, I would say, over the next 12 months. And of course, the more of those assets you have, the more wealthy you become. And of course, I, I've got clients on their ninth property, I think they're going to pull $900,000 this year. This is an amazing amount of money, a life-changing amount of money. But to get to this place where we potentially end up in a growth spurt, and for many people buying this year, they'll get uh, some growth, but then the market will call and then they'll have to wait for the next growth spurt, which is equally okay. That's just how real estate works. It comes in spurts and, and then it cools and then it goes again, it goes up and down all the time. So values fluctuate all the time. But remember, don't let little things cheat you out of opportunities. And valuations are probably one of the elements of buying real estate which cheat people out of opportunities all the time. Valuations are a methodology of assessing real estate, particularly driven from lenders and as such, we as property investors need to understand how to feasibly analyze real estate. Why? Because if we get, for example, a smaller or lower valuation than what we thought, it means we have to put more money into buying real estate. Or it also means if we own real estate, it's very, very difficult to recycle equity if the valuation of the asset from the lender is not moving. So we're going to dig into all the different types of valuation today so you can start to understand and quantify your feasibilities and your mathematics around real estate. But I tell you what, I think a lot of people are scared off from real estate through the actual purchasing process and don't become five properties in five cities investors because their first experience in real estate sucks. Yes, a lot of people really uh, are coming into the real estate market for the first time and getting a reality check on that buying real estate is not fun. And that, yes, saving a deposit takes a lot of hard work, but the actual purchasing process is quite often looked at through rose-colored glasses when it's really quite hostile. And I always teach, you know, pain is an indicator of how successful you're going to be. Whether you're going to be an elite sportsman, you're going to go through pain. An elite academic, you're going to go through pain studying. Real estate's no different. You've got to get through the hurdle of all the shit which comes with buying real estate, valuations being one of them. In other words, understanding why your valuation came in under purchase price and you need to put in more money. Now, not all valuations come in under purchase price, by the way, and today I'm just trying to flag what can happen to derail people from financial freedom and little things like the bank changing the lending conditions on, on your loan, uh, valuations coming in short, um, rental uh, uh, appraisals dropping, all this stuff starts to derail people from long-term investing. 
So today's show is about not derailing yourself when it comes to either owning real estate and understanding how to assess it from a valuation point of view and of course buying real estate and understanding right now in a rising market values are changing daily. I think I saw a figure that Melbourne's property market is going up $895 a day at the moment. So think about that, right? You've put uh, your heart and soul into buying a property and all of a sudden it's rising in value. And, uh, you know, depending on what you've paid, that might create a variation in mathematics. So in the industry, we often use this little phrase, there is God and then there are valuers. Yes, valuers play God in the real estate marketplace. And for us mere mortals as property investors, we need to understand how and why valuation is such a key topic of real estate. Now, I tell you what, obviously the real estate market is something no one can control. I can't control interest rates, neither can you. I can't control unemployment, neither can you. I can't control inflation, neither can you. So as a property investor, the first rule of understanding valuations is no one controls the market. All we can control when it comes to real estate is choosing a quality property in a quality location that attract quality tenants. It's all we can control. We can control that decision, but we cannot control the marketplace. And as such, as we cannot control the marketplace, it does have swings and it does grow in value at times and also stay stagnant or even uh, go down in value at times. Now, I always teach the property clock to understand, I guess, where we're at when it comes to understanding property markets. Obviously, if you took the traditional uh, 12-hour clock, which uh, is the analog version of a clock, uh, it's the idea of the clock is, is obviously just to understand the mood of the market, the timing of the market. So at the top, we have the peak. At two o'clock, we have the slide. At four o'clock, we start to trough. Six o'clock, we have the bottom. At eight o'clock, we have the recovery. At 10 o'clock, we have the rise. And then we have the peak again, right? So uh, it's a nice, easy way to visualize how a market flows. It goes around in this kind of dynamic. Now, when it comes to the market, it can go around that clock in one month. It can go around that clock in uh, 63 months. It can take uh, 10 years to go around that clock. No one ever knows how fast we're going to travel uh, time when it comes to a cycle in real estate. So the market will fluctuate up and down, rather like an index fund when it comes to, for example, the stock market. On any given day, market could be moving up, down and sideways. And of course, this does impact valuations because obviously the market is the market and there is a reason why the Reserve Bank of Australia meets on the first Tuesday of every month because the market really needs to be monitored monthly. So when it comes to understanding valuation, I teach a few different versions of valuation. Direct comparison, summation, capitalization, market value, unimproved land value, gross realization valuation, and desktop valuations. These are all 
common methodologies when it comes to understanding real estate. So we want to go through these and try and sort of walk away from this podcast by sort of comprehending how uh, we can assess real estate and look at it through several different doorways, not just one. The most common doorway is the market, market value. Market value is an interesting one because real estate agents quite often have a different market value to, for example, a lender from a bank. And obviously, uh, quite often when it comes to what is true market value and uh, what is an appraisal from a real estate is two different things. And quite often I find real estate agents are really a leading indicator of where the market is, but because data comes through a lot slower than really what real estate agents do out in the marketplace, you often find this gap between what the bank thinks the value is worth as a market value and what a real estate agent thinks the value is worth. And of course, from a lending point of view, uh, finance is uh, secured through valuation. In other words, when you get a loan, the bank sends in the valuer to make sure that they are lending you on the value of the asset. And this is where quite often, particularly in a rising market, you see this disconnect between what real estate agents can sell a property for and where banks believe the true value of the asset is. There is obviously a big difference at times and this is what tends to annoy everyone in the real estate community. Now if you learn to buy well, I'm going to teach you a way to uh, comprehend buying well, quite often you never really run into a uh, valuation challenge but there are periods where valuation challenges rear their ugly head and valuation challenges can I guess have degrees of degree of volatility. You can get a 1% low vow. It's like three, $4,000. It's no big deal. You can get a 20% low vow and that is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, that is a big deal for everybody. And of course, uh, when I'm brokering real estate, I tend to get it perfect on the valuation dollar or it might swing by, you know, one to 3%. It's not often that I ever come across um, a huge discrepancy in valuations. Um, and uh, if it is, there's usually a pretty good reason as to why. And uh, quite often that comes down to research and feasibilities and so forth. So there is a big difference between, I guess, what we would call market value by virtue of a mortgage valuation, a lending valuation, and of course, a market appraisal. It's kind of two different worlds. So think about the bank, right? What have they got at stake? After all, what is occurring for the most part in real estate is we are getting loans from the bank and ultimately we're responsible, but it is the bank's money. We are taking other people's money and in, in, for most people, that is the bank's money. In fact, the bank is putting in more money than we are. Remember leverage? We put down $50,000. They put down $450,000. So do you think the bank has a bit of a vested interest in making sure the security they're lending upon 
is the right amount. And this is where quite often for people who are new to the real estate market, they don't comprehend that their finance needs to be approved by the bank and of course the bank's valuer of choice. The bank fundamentally sends a valuer out um, and I'll explain how that's done through a couple of different methodologies and that valuer then has the risk of the bank on their back so they need to take into consideration the risk of the asset and of course value it as if it needs to be sold quickly and quite often when it comes to understanding a mortgage valuation for market purposes, the best way to understand it is the bank has to, and the valuer, has to assess the risk of a fire sale. In other words, let's say the economy is going uh, ridiculously badly and this real estate market is affected by the economy. How quickly can the bank get their money back? And quite often, uh, the idea of a market valuation is the idea that the valuer has to look at um, the true market value of the property where there is a willing buyer and willing seller to agree on a fair price over the course of a 90-day sale. So uh, that is, is fundamentally what normal market value is. A fair, um, a fair buyer and a fair seller over the course of a 90-day sale right? So 90 days is considered or three months is considered, um, you know, an appropriate time to sell a property if there is a fair buyer and a fair seller and there's no monkey business with rebates and things like that in the middle, you're going to end up with what true market value is from a valuer's perspective. But then they have to take in a level of risk and I'll talk about where that level of risk is uh, within a revaluation. And of course, when they look at the risk, they may actually say, well, we need to drop the value accordingly. So very, very interesting. The thing with uh, market valuations when it comes to real estate, quite often you're going to get several different opinions. When it comes to a buyer, for example, they will look at a property and, you know, five buyers will have five different opinions on the true value of that real estate. Uh, five vendors with the same real estate may have a different level of opinion of their own assets. Let's say there was, I don't know, five villas, they're all the same. The vendor also has a different opinion. And then, of course, real estate agents, and you may get three or four or five real estate agents to look at an asset, they also will have a difference or a different opinion on the real estate. And it is of no uh, a shock that also valuers quite often have a different opinion of the same piece of real estate. Very common, for example, in the real estate marketplace to get a valuation come in under purchase price and then order a second valuation and it come in even over purchase price or on purchase price. Again, different valuers have different opinions, no different to agents, buyers and vendors. It is what it is. Real estate is an opinion-based sport and as such, our valuations are kind of connected to... Uh, to opinions. And this is why I'm very much 
an advocate of the most interesting real estate is kind of real estate where the opinion of it is so strong that the value of it is unrefuted. And that can be through what I teach is behavioral economic logic. You know, um, at a niche level, what makes that property interesting? Is it the park next door? Is it the view? Is it the orientation? Is it the transport? All of this stuff obviously helps improve the value of real estate. Now, right now around the real estate marketplace, we are seeing a very strong auction clearance rate. Auctions are going gangbusters. People, of course, are going bonkers over real estate. The FOMO is thick and particularly in the discretionary or aspirational part of the real estate market in the established property section of the marketplace we are seeing auction records we are hearing stories of people sometimes bidding 200 300 500 900,000 over purchase price so when people obviously bid at auction uh generally um Real estate agents have auctions because there is a level of interest, more than one person wanting to buy the real estate. And of course, for a valuer, this is really good because on a day of auction, that valuer can really assess where those bids got to and where the market, a willing buyer and a willing seller, really are. And for the most part, Quite often at auction, uh, you'll find that potentially the underbid at auction is really where the valuer will put their valuation stamp of approval on the asset. In other words, the person who pays the most sometimes is not seen as fair market value. In other words, they've paid uh, the highest rate, but a second person wouldn't pay that rate or a third person, or a fourth person. So, of course, the bank then steps in and goes, well, we'll land on the lower uh, or underbidder level. And uh, sometimes that's just, again, 1%, you know, 10 grand. It's not a deal killer. But, of course, if at the auction uh, someone gets a little bit gung-ho, and let's say the auction had got to a million dollars where two bidders were left, um, and then the bid comes in at 1.1, well, that's a big variation if the second bidder doesn't step up, right? And all of a sudden, the incremental uh, variation is quite strong. So the bank is like, well, the underbidder was only at a million, and the third underbidder was at 980. So really, the market value for that asset is probably 990 to a million, uh, but the buyer got carried away and paid 1.1. So we're going to lend on, you know, 991 million. We're not going to lend on 1.1. You as the buyer now have to chip in. And of course, this is the danger of what is occurring when it comes to market value, uh, when it comes to real estate. Right now, the market is bonkers. And if you're willing to go uh, over the top and crush the opposition at an auction, you may just find you're crushing your cash flow doing that. So we've got to keep our head, right? We've got to understand valuation from a few angles. So we, uh, you know, 
basically don't um, throw all our cash into a piece of real estate we've paid too much for. This is where I quite often teach the idea of intrinsic value, right? Intrinsic value. It's an interesting way to analyze real estate. And for valuers, they quite often don't, when it comes to understanding market value, use intrinsic value. However, we as property investors can certainly look at intrinsic value of an asset and make some decisions around what that might look like. So intrinsic value is just the idea that real estate uh, is, for the most part, the uh, uh, title and the land, if you like, and property is the dwelling, right? The sort of differences. Um, Whether it's an apartment, townhouse, villa or a house, real estate and property has an intrinsic value. In other words, what does that dwelling on that property, what is it actually worth? Is it deteriorated to the point where it's a worthless dwelling? Is it um, a newer dwelling which has high intrinsic value? Is it um, a dwelling which is is fundamentally, uh, you know, needs to be knocked down? What is the intrinsic value of the asset? And I find with a lot of property investors, they fail to sort of work out, well, am I buying something with intrinsic value that'll go for 30 years before I need to inject capital cost into the asset? What is the intrinsic value of the dwelling? And again, um, a lot of people overdo this in a rising market because obviously there is a, a, a real situation of people missing out on, on real estate. It's not even a fear, it's a fact. It's a fact of missing out. We are in a fact of missing out marketplace, right? And so what happens is, um, you know, let's say a, the land of a certain property is 300, um, the actual dwelling is 300, like to replace that dwelling is 300, the dwelling is worth 300. And then someone goes and pays seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. They're actually overpaying on what it would cost to re- redo that entire asset. And we we see that a lot in the real estate marketplace. Some real estate is so good you could never re-emulate it at today's level. Uh, and that's where quite often you see you know these beautiful terrace houses in a city. You just can't replace that stuff, right? And it's got high intrinsic value. Because the craftsmanship of building those assets today is just not practical. Uh, you can't even get a bloody tradie to put a, a floorboard straight these days, let alone come up with ornate ceilings. Like, let's face it, the intrinsic value of an asset um, is something that is real, right? And quite often we find that a lot of property investors that I see fall into the uh, problem of not analyzing true intrinsic value and they end up with something which mathematically makes no sense where they've bought on market value but then realize they've got a highly capital intensive piece of real estate with no intrinsic value um, and uh, I think it's a really important thing right intrinsic value to me is also understanding our tax system 
Our tax system rewards people who own real estate built after 1984. If you're buying real estate where the birth of that real estate occurred before 1984, you have no intrinsic tax value in that asset. In other words, um, depreciation and tax rules around um, the idea of offsetting the, the value of that asset through cash flow only works for buildings older than 1984 and obviously the newer the better so some assets have intrinsic some properties have intrinsic built-in tax deductions that's amazing right and i would say uh, a lot of mistakes property investors make is they choose assets with no intrinsic value with high capital cost uh, expenditure and then no intrinsic or built-in tax value and of course, uh, wonder why they end up in a place with a with an asset which just attracts you know, uh, you know, uh, gopniks as tenants. Right? We do not want gopniks as tenants. The next valuation idea that I think is worth talking about is the gross realize realizable value. Gross realizable value. And this is where quite often we need to work out the highest and best use to manufacture equity out of a piece of real estate. Quite often, a, a GRV or gross realizable value is something that you might look at if you're doing a small development or being an armchair developer. In other words, you know, some land, um, it's got one house on it, but you can put five houses on it. If you subdivide, um, what is the true worth of that? And of course, if it um, makes economic sense as a development, you use this sort of gross realisation valuation methodology. What the future value of the asset is as opposed to the current value of the asset. And this is where uh, for armchair developers or for people who want to play the game of development, this is sometimes, again, one of the challenges when it comes to, to buying developments because a traditional bank will quite often look at small development sites as a market value thing, whereas we need to look at it at a future value uh, stage, a gross realisation valuation methodology. And of course, that's where uh, some more commercial banks then step in and go, yeah, we get it. Um, will lend you at a much higher interest rate to buy this real estate because of its future value, not its current value. And of course, uh, for many property investors, that is, is uh, uh, you know, a thing to understand about their assets. Does it have future growth potential from, from a development perspective? All right, so we know the market's bonkers. It's a fact we're all missing out on real estate. Um, there is a real undersupply of real estate, by the way. It is pretty bananas at the moment. And real estate values are increasing. And this is where we often uh, start to see our rates, yes, our council rates and our land tax increase. Think about that, right? I teach the five properties in five different cities plan so that my customers don't end up paying land tax because when you do pay land tax it really can mess with the cash flow of an asset i've one investment that i pay a huge amount of land tax on it's a really good property 
right on Sydney Harbour. Land tax is about $25,000 a year. Land tax, just land tax. Before you take into consideration the cost to run the property and, of course, the, um, the rates, right? So think about that. 25 Gs in land tax. The good thing about that asset is it produces some um, incredible income, but it, uh, it is taxed heavily, right? And so think about building your portfolio in a rising marketplace. Potentially, if you buy the, an investment over and above the threshold of, of land tax, your income or your future income is going to be affected by the unimproved land value and how it is assessed by council and obviously by the government. And this is quite often, um, I have the odd call every, I call it the wombat call. Yes, human beings can be wombats and uh, I often get um, get a call from uh, a customer who's like, bought an investment property and and a year later they see the council rates and the unimproved land value and of course the investment property I don't know is $400,000 and the unimproved land value once you take the dwelling away from the asset is $150,000 they ring me up and they're all aggressive oh you bastard my property's worth 150 I paid you know 400 for it and I'm like slow down tiger let's uh let's not be a wombat um what what are you referring to and um of course they they are referring to their council rates the unimproved land value and this is this is essentially if you took the dwelling away from the asset the government values the asset on its current uh current market value and quite often for council rates and land tax government takes three years of valuation and every three years adjusts the three years over a median um, and and applies that to your asset. And of course, you pay council fees and land tax and things like that on that mathematical formula. I generally uh, think it's, it's, it's a good idea to spread your real estate out across different marketplaces to avoid future land tax. Um, if you're buying in the same market, I generally help people blend across apartments and houses so that they don't end up in this kind of threshold where they're paying a large proportion of their income to land tax, right? And it can be quite annoying, you know, particularly if you own assets of high land value, which is, which is an important growth principle of real estate, but quite often assets with high land value, um, they have, have lower yields because obviously the yield against the value only goes so far. In other words, you know, a, a million dollar piece of land um, with a house on it um, may, you know, that house might be worth 1.6, but someone's only paying $900 a week to live there, right? The, the mathematics is always a little bit of an imbalance of, of cash flow. Then you pay land tax and, of course, your net yield becomes ridiculously low. So a lot of people end up in a place where they've built a portfolio that um, branches out into being uh, a, a non-income producing asset. And, of course, for me, that's a bit of a, bit of a blunder. So the most common ways to value real estate is three, 
right? And when I'm assessing real estate to buy, I use three methods of valuation to feasibly comprehend the real estate, right? And the three methods are direct comparison, uh, capitalization, and summation. I'll say it again. Direct comparison, capitalization, and summation. What am I talking about? Where are we going with this? Well, let's dig into it. I know we're all waiting. Um, direct comparison is, again, this idea that a bank or uh, us as a property investor need to find a like-for-like like comparable. And it's apples for apples, right? So we want to take our piece of real estate that we own and it, we might own it or we might be buying it and we want to have and see that there's been properties of similar style, ilk, design, age that have sold for a similar amount uh, nearby, right? And again, this gives us a direct approach of comparing our assets to someone else's comparable. Remember, with real estate in the marketplace, someone has to break the shackles for the value to go up. In other words, there's always going to be someone who's prepared to pay over what the true direct value is worth. Us as property investors, uh, one of the best ways to, to analyze our real estate, and really the first way to analyze our real estate, is the direct comparison approach. We want to find something that's fairly similar to ours and see what it's sold for and then understand um, where we fit in that place. The second method of valuation is sometimes known as replacement cost valuation uh, or the replacement method summation. And really, when you do your insurance, this is where it varies again in real estate. What you paid for your property may be completely different to its intrinsic value. And we see this all the time. I think there's some statistics that like 80% of property investors are underinsured because to replace your asset into the future or now may actually cost a lot more than what your asset is even worth. And, uh, you know, you might have paid $500,000 for the property, but to replace it, it's a million dollars. So you need... Um, insurance for a million dollars because $500,000 ain't going to get you very far, right? Replacement cost. Now, summation is uh, really the cost of, of the build plus the land, right? The cost of building this property and the land, you put them together and you have this thing called a summation of costs. And this is where, again, as a property investor, uh, we can understand what is happening in the new construction part of the marketplace to make some uh, decisions about what to buy. Remember, the first method when we're feasibly looking at real estate or even analysing real estate on our own accord, perhaps we own real estate that we, we want to understand where the value is. The first method, we go to direct comparison, like for like. And direct comparison is pretty easy. Like um, most of the desktop vows, if you like, use direct comparison. Um, and it can be, what can be challenging is if you have a unique property 
And, um, you know, it might have some interesting features and um, interesting design elements to it. And it's being directly compared to something which is this, which is homogenous. In other words, it's a four bedroom. So yours is a four bedroom. Uh, it's a 400 square meter block. Yours is a 400 square meter block. Direct comparison kind of can work like that. So sometimes it's better to physically inspect your asset and, and do that with valuers to if you know your asset is superior. We want to end up in this place. And I'll talk about that a little bit. I think I'm digressing. So let's go back to summation, the cost of building and, uh, and, and activating land, right? And quite often, I've used this method over the years to make money. And really, the best way to comprehend it is square meter rates, right? Each piece of dirt in, uh, in our suburbs is worth something per square meter. Each piece of new build is worth something per square meter. And if you've ever watched, I guess, a million dollar listing uh, in LA or New York on, on television, um, the famous real estate show with, you know, Frederick Eklund and, um, and uh, those guys over there, they sell real estate for the most part in America using summation, the, co- the square meter rate, basically, uh, square foot rate in America. So they work out the square foot, they work out, um, and I'll use, you know, what is it, the metric system, they work out the square meter rate, they work out if the property is uh, needs improvement or not, right? And then they can work out the, how to sell the real estate based on the mathematics of the actual land and the build. If it's a, if it's a better new build, better design, they will get a certain amount per square metre. If that build um, has declined in value and is old and decrepit, they factor in capital costs to assess the square metre rate. So we as property investors can use the same logic. And I've done this all all over the shop. Uh, The last time I bought a property using square metre rate logic, I bought a new build in Collingwood, Melbourne. I paid $10,400 internally for my apartment i paid 1500 externally for my apartment um there was basically uh a square meter rate applied to the size of the dwelling and uh at the time i paid circa eight hundred thousand dollars for the asset uh at ten thousand four hundred a meter now in that suburb the same asset is trading at near on uh, 12,000 a metre. Even when I deduct my age meterage, all of a sudden I can see the value of my asset is now worth some 200 odd thousand dollars more than what I paid. That has occurred over two years. When a real estate agent goes through the property and looks for direct comparables, they are now looking at the square metre comparables to to uh, in the in the newer section of the market to see the value um, uh, obviously unfold and so it's an it's an interesting one. I always use summation. I, I love summation because you can um, really work out where you sit in the price guide per square meter. In fact, it's not uncommon for me to buy what is known as square meter reports 
where uh, particularly in certain pockets of um, of cities, I'll work out what every new project is worth in a suburb to see um, how my property compares to that property. And again, um, it can make people an absolute lot of money when other people are paying 10,000 a metre and you're paying 8,000 a metre and you're in the same suburb and at a niche level, a very good street, you're making money, right? You're making money. Now, um, when it comes to uh, particularly, obviously, new builds, summation is a big, big component of it. And obviously, uh, the square metre rate of, of apartments is completely different to the square metre rate of a townhouse and, again, of a house. So with apartments, just to understand it, um, your internal size is usually, your internal floor plan rather, is at a certain square metre rate and the higher you go up the building, the higher your square metre rate. Your outdoor space is, is assessed at a different square metre rate. So just to use some easy maths, on average um, in an A or B grade location in say Melbourne or Brisbane or something like that, you know, you're probably internally at nine or 10,000 a metre and your balcony or your terrace is probably anywhere from sort of 1,500 to, to 3,000 a metre, okay? So then you can apply, well, how much am I buying this asset for and what is comparable assets selling for per square metre um, rate? When it comes to house and land, um, we also go through this sort of methodology as well. So... Obviously, the land is positioned by generally publicly listed companies at a certain value. Let's call it two fifty uh, to build a home on that property is two fifty. So the total package to build is five hundred thousand um, dollars. We need to make sure to, there's direct comparables at that price, but also um, potentially we can work out. Well, hang on a minute. There are some new builds up the street which are. Uh, $300,000 for their new build and we, we can get in at two fifty without skimping, we're making money. And quite often um, with the new construction end of the market, um, summation is just a really good methodology of understanding um, value. I use all three when I'm uh, analysing a piece of real estate to buy and when I'm um, factoring in how I'm looking at my real estate once I own it, right? Because... Obviously, um, we need to be smart about what we own and not just compare it to one method of valuation. The third method of valuation is uh, the cap rate, right? And this is quite often used in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate is kind of valued on its income. And I take the same principle and apply it to residential real estate. I try and value real estate on its income, the cap rate or capitalization is sometimes known as the rental method of valuation. So just think about it this way. If the average yield in Brisbane for houses is 4% and you're buying a house that has a rental return and a consistent rental return, not a fake rental return of 5%, then uh, you're actually buying very well using the rental method of valuation, right? You're buying um, fundamentally, uh, in that example, 20% better than what the market is is returning. And again, um, quite often, 
you'll see sometimes say if one um, method of valuation fails, let's say, um, you know, I've seen examples, for example, direct comparison fails and based on what the valuer of the direct comparison has highlighted, all of a sudden, if it was to be bought at that price, that would be a 9% yield. And all of a sudden you can work out, well, is this valuer just throwing this one? Because if it was a 9% return, do you think um, people would be interested? Uh, and the short answer is yes, right? So in real estate, like anything, there is some commercial things that happen behind the scenes. And I'm going to talk to you about why a valuer would throw the game and uh, not value the asset in. And uh, we'll talk about that as well. But for the most part, 99% of the time, we just want to look at our real estate and go, well, okay, my rental valuation is better than market. The cost of build that I bought at is now better than market. And my direct comparison, I'm, uh, you know, uh, better than market or in line with market, you know, depending on where we're up. Right now, it'd be great to be in line with market, let's face it, because, you know, it's hard to get a bargain out in the real estate market today because of the rising market. So we want to, we don't want to be paying over. We, we want to be um, fairly well, um, you know, under, under the, the threshold of what is normal. And, you know, I'm like looking at some assets now at 8,000 a metre in Melbourne and, and in inner Melbourne and, and, you know, the market's prepared to pay 11. Do I think that real estate's going to go up? Yes. Why? Because it's 8,000 a metre and it's not 11,000 a metre for one, but also because the price is pu pushed down per square metre rate, it means the rental method of valuation is a lot higher. And, of course, because the square metre rate is pushed down, means it sits now in the secondhand marketplace where there's lots of comparable sales. And of course, this means you get a result. But valuers are uh, really, um, you know, subjects to the banks. And though we say the saying, there is God and then there is valuers, for valuers themselves, they have to follow valuation 101, which is always follow the instructions. So what happens for a valuer? An instruction will come down from the bank to value the real estate accordingly and in such a way which sometimes messes with really logic, right? So they, a bank won't tell a customer that they're overexposed in a suburb. They won't do it. Uh, they won't say, hey, here at this bank, uh, we have too many loans in that suburb. We would love you to go down to the bank down the road. In fact, our competition, get a home loan off them. No, they won't do that. So what happens is commonly you'll find some banks basically almost like position the valuer to not value the asset correctly as to basically uh, throw, the, uh, make the deal not stack up and so that perhaps buyer stays with that bank and goes and chooses a new suburb to borrow money in. Remember, in tight credit markets, valuations are a lot harder because there's less sales in the market. In easy credit markets, valuations are a lot easier because there's lots of sales. Think about that, right? At the bottom of the market, when we all should be buying real estate, when 
Really, there's blood on the streets. Valuations are so hard to get right. But the opposite happens when credit is easy and every loose cannon is buying real estate. There is so many sales happening. The valuers quite often have a lot of comparables. And I've always almost argued that this is us about kite. It makes no sense to me that when it is the best time to buy, when no one else is buying, when you've got the choice of every piece of real estate in the marketplace, because of the lack of interest in real estate, it is harder to get a valuation to work. Makes no sense to me. Uh, when everyone is buying, um, valuations are just so much easier to come into place. And uh, obviously, real estate will go through mood shifts from hope, relief to completely capitulating. And where we are right now is this kind of thrilling excitement phase in the market. It's almost easy to get a better valuation when the market is is ex- excited as opposed to when um, you can buy at rock bottom in a capitulated marketplace. Never makes sense to me that one. I will, uh, you know, argue that one black or blue. If you're buying uh, using, I guess, Warren Buffett's methodology of show fear when others show courage, show courage when others show fear, uh, you should be rewarded. But it does sometimes not work that way. And the simple reason is valuers use one method of valuation, direct comparison. At the bottom of the market, though, you look at the summation costs. You look at uh, the cap rate at the bottom of the market. Ridiculously good value. So, uh, we today live in a big data society and the cool thing about that is what is known as desktop valuations. Um, Most real estate agents have uh, CoreLogic or RP data and can do desktop valuations. Fundamentally, it's just data pulled and spitting out a document which basically um, is almost like a probability of the valuation of the value. And, uh, you know, desktop valuations, you know, they, they are good for a, a quick little snippet into what's going on. But really, for serious property investors, you need to look at the cap rate, the summation costings, and direct comparison. Because desktop valuations um, today are not perfect, and they you know, they, they, they have a margin for error, right? Because they will pull, um, you know, uh, information into a deal, which, you know, sometimes is, is, is less relevant, right? Less relevant to, to the deal. So can we rely on desktop valuations? Yes, but no. And I know that's a shit answer. But Yes, they are a good way of looking at at, uh, real estate, but really, um, would a bank lend on a desktop valuation? For the most part, no. Um, Could you sell your real estate off a desktop valuation? For the most most part, no. Um, Could you refinance your uh, property off a desktop valuation? For the most part, no. So for a a serious action within the real estate marketplace, uh, the bank and lender and realtor have to dig a lot deeper into what is going on. And again, I think sometimes desktop valuations are a vanity matrix of of real estate. A lot of people use desktop valuations to even buy real estate from. And, um, you know, 
they can be horrendously wrong as much as they are a guide. So just a word of warning. Um, sometimes I think, you know, we need to be very, very skeptical of, um, of, of the desktop world in its limited form. I think we can, um, you know, at a, at, a, at a very basic vanity level go, yeah, okay, I see what's going on. That's cool. Uh, things are good. They're stable. Um, uh, you know, when I really need to dig into this, I'll come back and do it properly. So banks and, and lenders uh, really can control the different valuations in the marketplace. Uh, valuation 101, the instructions come from the lenders. So what is common is, and it, and it, it, is, it is amazing to see, um, I can be helping a first home buyer buy with the same bank and an investor. And the first home buyer, because they are considered less risky than an investor, will get a better valuation on the same asset. Blows my mind. It blows my mind. Um, and really, it makes sense though, because homeowners generally buy real estate for a long time. And first homeowners are less credit worthy than, you know, upgraders or downsizers. Investors are seen as less credit worthy than first home buyers. And so you, you tend to have this kind of variation where if an investor puts in a big enough deposit, uh, they can quite often get um, a really good valuation. If they put in a really low deposit, quite often the bank is nervous and you often see a correlation of uh, low, low valuations on um, people trying to gear up. And it really is uh, almost an unofficial way for a bank to end up lending you at 80%. Um, they, you go in at 90 and you get a low val and then you realize, well, um, you know, um, I'm just putting in money anyway uh, to, to own this asset. And so it's very, very interesting. Now, when we analyze risk, banks analyze risk, valuers analyze risk, and they analyze risk in uh, sort of about eight different sections, right? So when you look at evaluation, um, one of the biggest sections is the risk analyst section. And it's ranked out of five. One being very low risk, five being high risk. The more high risk uh, you have on your valuation, basically the odds of you getting a good loan-to-value ratio drop. So um, if you have, say, three, um, you know, fours or fives on your valuation out of the eight different sections that are high risk, quite often the bank can even reserve the right not to lend you the money or they'll drop the LVR. Or, uh, for example, you won't get lenders mortgage insurers. A mortgage insurer will go, this thing's way too high risk for you to borrow at 90%. Um, so, you know, we, d we won't lend you the money, right? So you need to then uh, dump the deal or move on, right? And so, again, when I'm analyzing real estate, I'm trying to find summation, a cap rate, a direct comparison, but also I'm trying to find low-risk real estate, which passes the, uh, you know, the, the powers that be's testing for borrowing money. So the first thing uh, valuers look at is 
the location and the neighborhood, real estate, location, location. Obviously, real estate broadly is a thing. Uh, at a suburb level, it's a thing, but also at a niche level. So are you in a good location at a niche level, at a street level? And this is the first test. We want to get a good score. We want a one. We want a two. We don't want a five, right? Uh, the improvement. Um, so uh, the second one is the dwelling itself. Is it something that needs to be knocked down? It would be considered high risk from a valuer. They would probably put a four and a five on it. If it's a small little uh, studio apartment, they're going to put high risk on it because, again, for um, uh, the risk analysis of, of that asset, it's just considered more high risk, right? And, uh, you know, it's just, just the way it is, okay? So the second one is the title. Uh, sorry, the third one is the title. So is it a leasehold title? Well, that would be risky. You'd get a five for that. Um, if it wasn't in Canberra, where there is nothing but leasehold, but uh, like a mining leasehold, high risk. Uh, is it, I don't know, Torrance title? You'll get a one, right? You'll get a really um, low score when it comes to the title. Environmental impact. And this again now for valuers is they're having to look at areas. Are they flood affected? Are they, you know, um, too close to, uh, you know, industry with uh, you know toxic waste coming out of the funnel what is the environmental impact of the asset is it is it um, uh, an affected piece of real estate they'll put a piece of risk on that so again for me as a negotiator i've got to try and find low risk assets that pass this parcel not something which gets stuck because of the risk analysis um the next one is the reduced risk right so the valuer has to look into a crystal ball and go, well, is there a probability that this asset will go backwards in the next two to three years? Will it actually go down in value? And obviously, they'll put a risk analysis on the asset. And of course, a lot of that has to do with the type of asset, the location, but also the demand for that type of asset. And of course, the economy itself, which is a little bit of crystal balling. This is where, you know, um, for most valuers, um, if you're going to see something higher, quite often it's like generally at a three level, um, valuers tend to plant, um, you know, their, their odds. They, they almost like, a, um, uh, you know, in the middle when it comes to, well, will the market go up or will the market go down? Um and uh, again, um, that's that kind of market volatility, which is, is, uh, is something that I've spoken about. If you haven't heard the volatility index, you need to go and listen to it, right? Um, I think it's, I don't know what podcast it is, but go find it. It's the, the market volatility index. Some suburbs have a higher volatility index than others. Some towns have a higher volatility index a town with two industries has a much higher volatility index than Sydney with a gazillion industries, right? So again, um, you know, uh, for a purchaser, they have to be very cog uh, cognizant of behind the scenes, this is at work. They, they may not even see these valuations, but this is what the bank and the valuer are doing, talking to each other. They're going, well, this idiot's buying something in a very volatile place. Go for it. Who are us to stop them doing it? Uh, we won't tell them 
that they have a five risk rating on volatility, um, lend them the money. Um, and of course, uh, what tends to happen is sometimes, um, you know, people end up buying something quite volatile, which they can't comprehend why the bank actually let them do this. And of course, um, you know, for, for many, many uh, people who, who rushed out into weird little uh, mining villages in the middle of nowhere back in the last boom, sort of 2010, 11, 12, they got absolutely crucified on market volatility. Their assets dropped by 80% and they couldn't understand when, when they um, did sort of some, you know, research into why did they get lent the money in the first place that the banks put them in this position. And, and really, um, you know, uh, what we need to understand in real estate is, uh, you know, the Latin phrase caveat emptor, buyer beware. And this is, this is part of the challenge of being a buyer. Uh, so, um, you know, the other sections, uh, local market economy um, and market uh, segment, like where the asset fits in the market segment. Is it a good sort of three-bedroom dwelling that attracts three-bedroom buyers, that kind of thing. So, Overall, we want very good low risk ratings and uh, quite often for us, um, that, is, that is one of the big ways to get good leverage in the marketplace. Remember when we're reborrowing money, uh, quite often we have to get the asset revalued and to release equity, banks will want to see low risk ratings to release equity and quite often we uh, need to see not only our assets go up, but our risk rating or volatility stay low. So uh, what I can tell you is without question, banks have exposure limits in marketplaces where they're overexposed. And um, understanding valuation is really, really important. Understanding how to analyze real estate, how to feasibly comprehend it, what is the logic behind it, it's just critical right and you know there's some great companies today that are leading the way when it comes to data core logic sometimes known as rp data is is a market leader right they have literally access to millions of valuations every year in fact they own a thing which is known as valax now this again when you're buying real estate um is something you need to comprehend that basically uh, a robot or a computer spins the wheel and uh, a valuer is assigned to a bank. So what happens is uh, certain banks will tender for, for valuers to be on their panel. So Westpac might have, I don't know, six valuers that service the inner city suburb of Balimba in Brisbane. Uh, then... Uh, Valax, which is like this thing owned by CoreLogic, it's a robot, it's basically a roulette wheel, spins the wheel and uh, a valuer, let's call it Heron Todd White, is assigned the job to value the asset on behalf of Westpac. And uh, this is designed so that um, there's kind of an impartial, really fair way of considering a value. And again, for many property investors, if they end up with a dud valuation from that particular valuer, from that particular bank, it does create a little bit of havoc um, if that valuer, if that 
buyer is grossly um, off when it comes to what they paid for the real estate. When it's off by, you know, 5, 10, 20 grand, um, it's pretty normal really in real estate. Um, when it's off by 100 or 200 or $300,000, that's a problem, right? And uh, I've heard stories of late that many people paying literally hundreds of thousand dollars over the purchase price to buy real estate are now getting stuck with these these big differentials in value. And, uh, you know, certainly... Obviously, for the most investors, it's, you know, five grand or nothing at all, right? I'd recently had a valuation come in in Melbourne, $30,000 over purchase price. So again, um, you know, when you're in that um, realm of, of normal uh, activity, um, you know, it's just the way real estate works, right? And, and like I said in the beginning, don't let little things cheat you out of a big opportunity. A $10,000 low val is is pretty normal, right? It's not a big deal. A $200,000 vowel is a big deal, right? A $50,000 vowel is a big deal. But, you know, within one or two or 3%, that's pretty normal for real estate, particularly in a moving market where the average price is going up like $800 a day, right? It's just the way it is. So um, when it comes to understanding how real estate works, you've got to understand Valax. So again, if you're getting your property valued by a bank, um, you know, they will spin the wheel and generally you only get one go at it. And so this is where sometimes uh, you do not want equity lock. And equity lock is, you know, if you're, all your assets are with one bank and again, you've got equity in those assets and you, you want to be able to extract that equity to do whatever you want within your life, hopefully invest, and again, um, you can't get it out because that particular bank has challenges or, or, or is getting bad valuations in that neighborhood. And an alternative bank is releasing equity. Happens all the time. Really frustrating nuance within the real estate marketplace. It is what it is. Uh, there's not much um, you can do other than spread your risk around um, several banks in one go. Uh, most banks outsource valuations the only bank I know of that still does it internally is National Australia Bank. They actually run their own valuation service um, and uh, fundamentally have a team of valuers inside their business. And of course, um, uh, you know, uh, certainly, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting side note to this whole conversation around valuations. I guess my last comment when it comes to the idea of valuations for the actual valuer they are probably getting paid, so you know, like $350 to take a risk to look at an asset and report that risk level on that asset to a Goliath bank. And one of the challenges for the poor old valuers in the marketplace today is the rising cost of their professional indemnity insurance. Imagine being a little valuer looking at real estate all day, every day and just getting one wrong and having the power of such a huge bank bear down on top of you, such as the big four Australian banks today. Would be a pretty scary place to be. So for the most part, when it comes to buying real estate, valuers are a little bit more conservative than real estate agents. That's just the way it is doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. It just is the real estate marketplace of which we have to get very smart 
when it comes to buying real estate within. I teach the big three, summation, cap rate, and direct comparison. Stick to them and you're generally going to find a good level of value in either what you own or what you want to buy. Hey, thanks for listening to the Urban Property Investor. I will catch you next time on another fun-thrilled episode of Cracking Real Estate Codes. Over and out. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.